0: Christ Church, New Malden, Sunday the 3rd of September, 2023, 9.30 service. Pamela Warren speaking on Why I am a Christian. I'm Pamela Warren and I've been coming to this church since I first moved here in 1998, with about five years off when I was in Japan for my husband's work. This is rather a long talk because... It won't have escaped your notice that I'm quite advanced in years so there's a lot to say and quite a lot has happened and the best bits don't start till I'm well into my forties so I do hope you'll bear with me why am I a Christian well the short answer is I haven't always been but nothing else I tried worked that might sound flippant something I'm not usually described as, but looking back on my life, I can see both its truth and, at the same time, how all along I was being pointed in this direction by people or events, that is, pointed Christwards. My childhood introduction to Christianity was nothing like today's. In the early 1950s at my primary school, Christchurch, Wolverhampton, or Wolverhampton as everybody who lives there and as my father called it, I had a fire and brimstone version. My first teacher told us we were either sheep or goats, and when the day of judgment came, we'd find ourselves burning in hell if we weren't on the right side. My parents were not churchgoers or educated past the age of 14. They had three children, me, born in 1947, but conceived before they were married and the reason they did marry, a source of constant shame for my mother. Paul a year later and then Colin in 1954. Like most children then we were christened as babies. On my father's wage as a lorry driver we weren't well off and for the first six years of my life we lived in various lodgings before moving into a council house. My father loved being out on the open road, so he left looking after the children to my mother. She was a strong and strict woman who worked hard and did her best without modern conveniences like washing machine, hoover, indoor toilet or bathroom. And because she didn't want to be like her mother, who'd left her husband and young family in Plumstead and run off with a much younger man before the war, my mother kept us on a tight leash... So tight that it wasn't easy for us to think for ourselves or make our own decisions but we were well fed and clothed if not emotionally affirmed in those days you often heard it said children should be seen and not heard and my mother said that but we always had a week's annual holiday at the seaside in a caravan or cottage in north wales and these times hold happy memories sadly in her early 30s My mother suffered with alopecia, eventually losing all her hair, which was the cause of much discomfort and stress in the household. But she liked to read, so although there was little money for luxuries, we always had a book for our birthdays and Christmas. And one of my earliest was The Story of Jesus According to St Luke, with some lovely black and white illustrations, including this a demon with long claws and bared teeth attacking a child. You can imagine my nightmares. I loved reading, but what stuck with me was the image of that devil. I didn't see the child in the arms of God there. However, my school friend took me to the Baptist Sunday School where, undeterred, I enjoyed listening to the parables Jesus told. And at ten, because my friend was doing it, I wanted to be confirmed and to wear a white dress. The vicar gave me a multiple choice checklist of sins in preparation for the big day. Top of the list was, I have been deceitful. Tick. When my mother saw this, she was dismayed. Why have you ticked that, she asked. Because you said I was deceitful, I protested. You're not deceitful, she said making sure I crossed out the tick. But it left me confused about both the meaning of deceitfulness and sin. However, I was confirmed wearing a white pleated skirt and blouse, my grandmother gave me my first Bible, and I continued going to church on Sundays. I don't have a picture of a confirmation, but uh, this is me as a brownie at a similar age. I was one of those few fortunate working-class children in those days to pass the 11-plus, and I went to a mixed grammar school where, although I was shy, I thrived. And I've put that picture up on the left of me and the netball team for any um, cricketing fans here because behind me is standing Rachel Hayho, later Rachel Hayho Flint, the first Women's England cricket captain in 1966. She was our games mistress before then. As a teenager, listening to other friends' ideas, I must have let church going slip because I recall the same vicar who gave me the checklist passing me on my way home one day and asking, guilty conscience, when I didn't meet his eye. Once more, my mother was not amused. Because I'd been introduced to the theatre at school and loved acting in plays, I got a place to do drama at Bretton Hall Teacher Training College. But after my A-level results came out much better than expected, my headmaster persuaded my parents to enter me into the clearinghouse for a university place instead. So without really knowing what I was doing, I found myself reading French in one of the newly built 60s universities when I'd never even crossed the channel. As part of the course, we studied the philosophy of existentialism. This presumes that life is meaningless, that good and bad are human constructions, and that we have free will to create our own meaning for which we are then responsible. There is no room for a creator. Once more, I was thrown off balance. And at 19 in my second year, the pressures of being out of my depth took their toll, and I had what was then called a nervous breakdown. Today it would possibly be referred to as mental health issues, which I'd probably been suffering from unrecognised for some time. I'd come across the Christian Union earlier and gone to a prayer meeting. And in one of my exams, feeling at a loss for words, I wrote, God will provide. And I walked out before finishing the paper. The next thing I recall from that difficult time was waking up in the annex of a psychiatric hospital where I spent 10 days, after which I was discharged. My father took me home and unsuccessfully, we tried to work out what had happened and why, of course, I'd failed the exams. Because my university tutor was married to the chaplain at the local teacher training college, a transfer was organised and I began studying English at Christchurch College, Canterbury, in 1968. I qualified with a teacher's certificate in 1970. The college had a chapel at its heart, but I took no advantage of that, still feeling I wasn't the sort of person I imagined would be comfortable there. I spent my twenties and early thirties teaching English and French in comprehensive schools in Wolverhampton and from 1980 responsible for drama at the Cathedral School in Peterborough. After school I was busy directing school plays and getting pupils through Lambda London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art exams while acting myself in drama groups at local theatres and spending my Saturday nights at parties and nightclubs. I was reading all the popular books on the self-help shelves in an effort to work out how to make myself more lovable and therefore happier. I had various boyfriends, many highly unsuitable. My mother was constantly urging me to settle down which only made me more adamant that that wasn't for me. On reflection, I think I was having a late rebellion against my relationship with her and my claustrophobic upbringing. And I was looking for love in all the wrong places. I had no sense of my own self-worth and I'm ashamed when I consider the suffering I put myself and others through by trying to fit in with the fashionable ideas of a free love society. Against everyone's advice... I left Peterborough in 1983 to follow the current boyfriend, a hairdresser, to Nairobi, Kenya, where he was going to work in a hotel salon. Again, I had no idea what I was letting myself in for, although I believed we would be married there. The relationship only lasted six more weeks when I discovered he was involved in drug use. But by then, I had found work in the only repertory theatre in Kenya and was learning stagecraft with British professionals. And at 35, my childhood dream had come true. I was acting for a living. But due to financial problems, the theatre had to close within a year. However, with 13 years teaching experience in Britain, I wasn't out of work for long, and I joined the staff of a prestigious prep school called The Banda in Nairobi. There, I taught children like Ruth and David Trinea, whose parents, Chris and Mike, some of you will know, worked for the Navigators in Africa. The pupils were eager to learn and my teaching skills flourished. What I didn't know until she told me 15 years later when I moved to New Malden and discovered that the Trineers had a home here and came to this church, was that the quiet 11-year-old Ruth in the back row of my class, sensing that her favourite English teacher wasn't happy, used to pray for me. One Sunday evening in June 1984, I was being driven back from a weekend trip up country. In the darkness on the Mombasa Road, 35 miles from Nairobi, As my male friend and I stopped to mend a sudden puncture, a gang of six armed robbers dragged us into a ditch at the side of the road, threatening to kill us. Desperate to break free, I asked the ones holding me if they believed in God. This seemed to incense one further, and I was hit over the head with a machete. I offered the gang money which I had in the car, not knowing that it had already been taken. The thought that there was more to give them, however, meant they loosened their hold long enough for me to run out into the road, where, fortunately, a coach of Muslim women was returning from worship at a nearby mosque. The women told their driver they'd seen a white woman with blood on her white sweater and he slowed down sufficiently for me to be hoisted aboard. One of the women was a doctor's wife, so I was taken to the MP Shah Hospital in Nairobi to be stitched up. My overriding feeling was of gratitude to those women and guilt at having been in the wrong place at the wrong time. We'd been too busy with a bottle of wine swapping life stories to start the homeward journey earlier. And a biscuit factory had closed down that week, putting men in that area out of work. But it was a turning point in my life. Gradually, positive things flowed from it. I realised that there are such things as angels at work. And a year later, because I was still finding it difficult to sleep, a doctor recommended a course of counselling therapy, a very new concept to me at the time. Step by step, a greater sense of self-respect was awakened in me and I began to recognise my emotional needs. And finally, I met David, a man completely different from the men I'd been attracted to up until then. He was in Nairobi on a diplomatic posting. I was still acting in the holidays, and we found ourselves cast as husband and wife in The Real Thing by Tom Stoppard. Our friendship began as we discussed our characters' motivations. Offered a job at the Italia Conti Stage School in London in 1989, I decided to leave Kenya to resume my teaching career. And unexpectedly, David came back to the UK the following year. Our relationship developed, and in 1992, we were married at Morden Hall Park Registry Office. And I moved from Haringey to David's flat in Wimbledon. The following year, at the age of 45, I became pregnant, only to miscarry after three months. Shortly afterwards, we were on our way to David's second posting to the British Embassy in Tokyo, Japan. From my story so far, you'd be right to get a picture of a certain directionlessness. From when I left home at 23, I'd moved house and changed jobs many times. I'd lived and worked in Wolverhampton, Peterborough, Nairobi and London. I'd spent much of my life searching, not knowing what for, resisting the pull towards my misconceived view of what being a Christian entailed. I never rejected God. I was often questioning and sometimes hearing what people around me had to say, how sin was anything that separated us from God, how it came about when we put ourselves at the centre of life. But I wasn't always listening. I'd assumed Christians were people who'd never broken the Ten Commandments, unlike me. Married to David, I had a sense of purpose. I felt emotionally supported, ready and able to lend my support in return. Despite his not being a Christian, We both say that God had a hand in our meeting. There is no other way our paths might have crossed. Once in Japan in 1993, I had to come to terms with never being a mother. My neighbor, another spouse from the embassy, introduced me to the Tokyo Union Church Women's Society, which offered courses for newcomers to learn more about the culture of the country as well as ikebana and tai chi i started a course on the tapestry of religion in japan at the same time david's secretary deborah who was and still is a devout christian suffered a miscarriage and i felt able to offer her help and understanding which she gave me later in 1996 when i heard that my father was terminally ill deborah told me she'd stood up in the congregation one sunday And asked for prayer for my father on the same day that my mother told me later that dad had rallied was eating and had gone into the garden from then on i was sufficiently intrigued to start going to church with her and i continued after my father died it took more courage for me to go to church alone however i'd sit in the balcony to avoid the roving mike asking newcomers to introduce themselves i was content to watch families chatting below although a part of me wished I could join them. I was trying to follow C.S. Lewis's advice on faith, to act as if I believed, and the rest would follow. Yet I was uncomfortable with the language, such as being on fire for God and having a relationship with Jesus. It wasn't rational and seemed remote from my childhood perception of God, which was awesome, yes, but judgmental, even vengeful. Then... In December 1996, I heard a young American preacher, Barbara Lund. The reading was Luke 14, verses 16 to 24, which David read for us earlier. The parable of the rich man's banquet. Everything was prepared, the guests had been invited, but were making excuses for why they couldn't drop everything and join the host. Why? said Barbara and I felt she was looking directly at me when God is inviting you to the best party in town would you not want to go? She touched a nerve like the guests in the parable I could offer all sorts of reasons to decline such an invitation fear of the unknown of opening myself to people I didn't know everyone else there was better than me Christians looked joyful, yes, but that must be because they were pure and holy and had obeyed all the commandments and life had treated them well. I was compelled to speak to Barbara as she said goodbye to the congregation at the door. She suggested meeting for coffee during the week, and there I told her some of what I was feeling and was surprised to hear her say too that she had doubts and didn't think of herself as a good Christian naive though this might sound it was probably the first time i realized that a christian wasn't going to judge me wasn't automatically perfect and didn't have to be i went to a course at the church on prayer based on a book by richard foster an american quaker theologian finding the heart's true home i discovered that prayer wasn't only learned rituals It could be a way of settling my anxieties. Foster writes, We cannot master prayer because the object of prayer is to be mastered. We left Tokyo in 1998, and through a series of amazing coincidences, connecting people in our lives from Tokyo, Kenya, and New Malden, we found ourselves buying the house we live in around the corner from this church. Diana Butler knocked on the door in my first week and invited me to Wednesday Women, now renamed Connections. I did her Christianity Explained course and shared my questions about faith and doubt with her and others. I joined Jackie Sealing's group to pray for our Christian and non-Christian spouses. Ten years passed with inevitable ups and downs and I became a regular member of the women's group and the church. I felt strengthened by the fellowship and prayerful attitudes I found here. In 2008, David was again posted to Japan and I returned to Tokyo Union Church. Throughout our four years in Tokyo, I was comforted by the fact that the women's prayer group continued by Denise Roth and Diana Elsden, when Jackie returned to Texas, was praying for us. And on our return, In 2013, it was one of the easiest and most joyful things to pick up my links with Christchurch and renew my Bible study and relationships here. I do feel I've been saved from a life without God, rudderless as I was, not knowing where I was heading. When David's parents died and he cleared the home in which he had grown up, he found two Bibles, One, a Big King James version with the Warren family tree at the front, and a Good News Bible with an inscription from one of his mother's cousins. If you search diligently, all the answers to all the questions are contained herein. And I believe now this is right. When I first went into Christchurch Junior School Hall in 2014 to take part in Open the Book Assemblies, I was struck by the words painted around the walls. Becoming the people God made us to be, the best version of ourselves. How I wish I'd known that in my younger days, when I was too intent on pleasing others. I might have saved myself untold misery. But, as St Paul wrote to the Romans in the first century AD, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. And we know that in all things God works for good with those who love the Lord and have been called according to his purpose. Verses like these and Jeremiah's words to the exiles sometime in the fifth or sixth century BC I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you hope and a future, they speak peace to me. So why am I a Christian? I still don't know how to answer, other than to say I know very well what it's like not to be. It's still a mystery, having a relationship with a man who died more than 2,000 years ago isn't rational, it requires faith, But I know what it's like not to have that faith. And by God's grace, through the Holy Spirit, it began to grow in me. And thank God it's still growing. So my final answer is, I'm a work in progress.